0: Hey, everybody. Warren Smith here, and I'm delighted to be with you once again for this episode of the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's episode, uh, a special treat, I think. I've got an interview that I did uh, several weeks ago with Nagma Abedini Pahani. Now, if that name doesn't sound terribly familiar to you, that means that you probably uh, weren't paying attention to the news when um, Nagma's uh, former husband, Pastor Saeed, was uh, imprisoned. And uh, when that happened, uh, it thrust her into the national and even international spotlight as uh, Christians around the world really rallied to her in her efforts to get Pastor Saeed released from uh, j- from prison, from really a, a, a prison camp. It was a, a horrible uh, situation. But uh, Nagma's life was not what it seemed whenever uh, she was on national news and even international u- news. She was at the United Nations in Geneva, the European Parliament, and in the U.S. Congress. Uh, when she finally revealed um, that she had been... Uh, The subject of years-long domestic abuse at the hands of her husband, uh, Saeed, many Christian leaders and other former supporters turned their backs on her, and some even urged her urged her to remain silent. Her story really, of course, is a compelling personal uh, story, but it also says a whole lot about the culture of many of the sort of hidden corners of evangelicalism, and that's one of the reasons why I thought it would be really appropriate for us to hear her story on the Ministry Watch podcast. She's written a book, a fairly new book, it actually came out last year, called I Didn't Survive. Uh, emerging whole after deception, persecution, and hidden abuse you know i get a lot of books in the mail in fact probably almost one every day and the vast majority of them (laughs) you know uh, go to either go to my church's library or to goodwill Um, this is one that i expected candidly would end up in that stack as well but it didn't Uh, i found this book to be compelling and uh, one of the reasons again that i wanted to bring uh, nagma's story you. Um, I'll have some more to say about uh, Nagma's story and about some other things going on here at Ministry Watch. But first, here is my interview with Nagma Abedini Pahani. I hope you are edified and encouraged and challenged by some of what we say. Nagma, thank you so much for being on the program. I must say that I I found your book, I Didn't Survive, to be absolutely compelling. And I, I got to be honest with you, I wasn't sure it was going to be <laughs> when I when I got the book in the you know from your publicist and uh, you know they said hey you know would you be interested I was like yeah maybe send me the book and I'll whatever but. I mean, because I th- and the reason for that is because I thought I knew your story, you know, and because I've been following it. I've been, you know, involved in Christian journalism for, you know, virtually the entire period of, you know, uh, your ex-husband's um, uh, imprisonment and all of the stuff that happened after that. But man, oh man, I didn't know a fraction of your story. And uh, this book was really compelling. Can you quickly tell our listeners your you know, kind of the an overview of your story and why you wanted to write this book?
1: Uh, yeah, my story, as you said, uh, a lot of people probably remember it when Saeed was in prison in Iran and I was advocating for him. Uh, but a lot of people don't know my backstory of having been born in a Muslim country, um, born into a Muslim family, and then uh, how me and my twin brother came to faith, and then how I went back to Iran as a missionary in my 20s. And that's when I met Saeed and we uh, actually got to experience uh, re- uh, revival for the first time in that country in 1400 years and one of the largest house church movements. And then coming back to the U.S. and Saeed going back to Iran and him getting arrested. So that's when people started knowing more about my story. But I, you know, I grew up in a Muslim family and my dad was um, pretty strong Muslim or my uh, maiden last name is Shariat Panahi, which means Shariat is Islamic law. Panahi means protector. So it means protector of the Islamic law. My dad was proud of that and that we had a direct line bloodline to the prophet of Islam, Muhammad. And so uh, my dad would always tell us that that was who we were. We were Muslim. We were connected to the prophet. And um, also my dad was, uh, you know, during the Islamic revolution, in 1979, I was two years old. My mom was in the King's Army trying to prevent the revolution, arresting protesters. And my dad was one of the people that was protesting to bring the Islamic Re- revolution to Iran because he really believed Islam was the solution to everything. And so, you know, when we came to America because of war, um, my brother had a vision of Jesus and uh My brother, who's not very emotional he's very mathematical, he got a doctorate in quantum physics at University of Chicago, came running to me and crying and saying, you know, Nagme, I found the God we've been looking for. His name is Jesus. And he had had a vision. So that was our journey into uh, becoming Christians. And my parents were very upset. Long story short, moved us to Idaho to get away from the Christians in California. And um, yeah, so went to college. I studied pre-med, was going to be a medical doctor as, you know, a lot of immigrant families are, they expect their children to follow the American dream and become rich and, you know, comfortable living. And um, as I was studying, as I finished my pre-med and was about to go to medical school, God called me back to Iran. And that's when, after September 11, I went back and I got to experience see revival with my own eyes and kind of be at the forefront of it. Uh, that's when I met Saeed, who had been born and raised in Iran. We came to America after much persecution. I had been in Iran about four or five years uh, after much persecution and the church really growing rapidly. We came to America. And um, as many people know, Saeed decided to go back in 2012 and got arrested. And I started advocating for him. So, um, yeah, so a lot of people don't know that backstory.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned your brother who, as you said, has a PhD in in, uh, mathematics and and works in the field of quantum physics today. I did a little bit of uh, creeping around on Google about, you you know, you and your family. Uh, I mean, you guys, uh, highly accomplished, well-educated, successful, financially successful family, both in Iran and here in the United States um it was um i mean you, in some ways uh you guys were sort of the poster children for the american dream um did did that um uh, and and you've you've already mentioned how that made it hard for you when you converted to Christianity because there was a season you know that that kind of alienated you from your family, but I'm also wondering you know what that um kind of that status and that prosperity uh, meant whenever you ultimately kind of walked away from a lot of that. I mean, you walked away from your marriage, you walked away from, you know, sort of the, the status of being the perfect Christian wife. Um, it, you know, I'm, I'm skipping ahead in your story, but, um, but I'm kind of wanting to put those two bookends together. Talk a little about that.
1: Yeah, a lot of people don't know when my dad came here and as an immigrant he started a business, very successful business. Uh he was he actually got his masters in engineering at um University of Oregon or or Oregon State University, the Beavers, whatever, yeah, Oregon State University. And so after he got it, my dad came from a pretty wealthy family so they sent him to america to study and then once he got his master's in engineering he went back and married my mom and we were raised there for the first nine years but uh so when he came back he was a genius of an engineer he started a a company here quickly grew where he was employing over 100 people and uh you know as you said we were doing pretty well it was the american dream of being rich and comfortable and just having a good life and forgetting about the war and chaos we left. And so, um, uh, when I, you know, obviously when we became a Christian, my dad was very upset. He thought we lost our culture. And then when I felt called by God to go back to Iran, that was pretty shocking for my parents. They had, they were just baby Christians, but you know, I, I, I think God grows us, um, uh, little, you know, it's not a big jump. I think, uh, in my twenties, when God really called me to leave everything, my dream of, um, I guess having a safe you know, it was right after September 11 and going into the Middle East was not very safe. Um, And so I guess leaving safety and family and money and uh, a lot of the things that I had, we had left Iran for was seemed very um dumb, I guess, <laughs> not very smart, but I really felt by God to go there. And, you know, God was preparing me because it was hard walking away. I talk about it in my book. I, Uh, I really felt like God was telling me to go to Iran, but I went to India for a season and in India, God actually said, nope, I want you to go to Iran. And uh, I had to really walk away from the idol of comfort, idol of the, you know, the comfortable Christian life and really put myself in a situation where now as a convert, we left Iran as Muslims, respected Muslim family. Now I went back as a Christian convert uh, and experiencing persecution. Of course, as a woman, experiencing even worse persecution and covering up and being, you know, threatened uh, multiple times to be raped and tortured uh, because I was a Christian. And so experiencing that as a Christian woman in Iran. um, And but at the same time, following Christ, you know, is like the cross, and it's the narrow road that then you, God allowed me to see revival, God allowed me to see a country that had been closed to the gospel for 1400 years, we planted uh, uh, hundreds of house churches in over 33 cities in Iran that had not had churches in for over 1400 years. Um, in two years, 33 cities had churches. And so being able to see that, but as you said, this walking away, I think God was Throughout our Christian walk, he has, um, you know, as we go, grow through sanctification, we uh, have tests of faith, or are we choosing God over family or comfort or wealth? And and when I advocated for sight, I had all of that. I mean, being a Christian was wonderful. I had hundreds of millions, not just millions. I had hundreds of millions of Christians supporting me, um, advocating for sight. It was really a unifying cause for the body of Christ from all denominations, from every theology, people were united in the fact that Iran should not be imprisoning a Christian pastor. And so it really unified the Christian world. I had their support. I was in private jets with Franklin Graham, who's Close to you. And I was close with him. And so, in a way, I thought, oh, this is, you know, of course, I was advocating for my husband, but in a way, I was kind of getting used to, oh, I can, you know, fly around in private jets, have a really rich life, Christian life, have multiple houses, maybe even private jets, and still follow Christ. But there was a part of me that was in battle with that because I knew when I had left America for Iran in my 20s, I knew that the way of the cross was us giving up everything for Christ because he'd already given us his life. It was not a life of uh, using the name of Christ for our own benefit. And the verse that God kept speaking to me um, was friendship with the world as being an enemy to God. So um, when all this stuff unfolded about my marriage, I had two options. I was told by likes of Franklin Graham and others to hide it. Uh, and that if I hid um, what the reality of Said and our marriage, then I would have an amazing ministry. I would continue to have platforms to speak. I would have a pretty good, rich, comfortable Christian life, books, movies. Um, But if it was to be exposed, I was told, you know, everything would be shut down. I would have no platform, no ministry. Uh, Everyone was going to make sure all the people... Key players in the Christian world were going to make sure that I never got an opportunity to do any ministry, which yeah. at that time I was actually thankful for because I I was not interested in ministry. I, I'm, I'm interested in following Christ. I think when ministry becomes an idol, then it's better that it's that we don't, you know, it was it was no longer anything that was interesting to me. I, I just wanted to be uh, follow Christ, but I did lose everything. I mean, I had two roads before me, a wider road of a good Christian facade of Christian life, and another road that re- included uh, losing my income, losing um, the Christian world's opinion of me, losing my marriage. Even though I didn't divorce, he divorced me. I did draw boundaries, and I knew the risk of drawing boundaries would mean that he would walk away, which was probably the most heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um. Well. I want to interrupt you here, um, not not to interrupt the narrative, but, but to maybe drill down a little bit into some of the things that you've already mentioned, uh, because uh, e- even though you guys were planting churches and you were seeing revival in Iran, your, your marriage—I uh, I now know from reading your book— um, was kind of flawed from the very beginning I mean it was there was brokenness I mean which I mean every marriage let's just I've been married for forty years <laughs> every marriage is broken right every person is broken um but i I will have to say that the that the, the level of brokenness that you describe in your book is um is m- more than most and there was there was f- uh, abuse physical abuse sexual abuse other you know emotional abuse um that you recount in you know, um, in detail, I'm not going to recount all of that here, uh, but, 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 uh, I found it to be credible and specific in your book. And I would just encourage everybody to go read your book. But so during that time and when Saeed was in prison, um, you nonetheless were a global advocate for him. Is that what you, did you feel like that's just kind of what you had to do at that time? Or or I mean, despite Saeed's brokenness, he was your husband. He is a Christian brother um, and that not, not only was it what you had to do, but something that you feel, felt compelled to do, that it was a part of what God was calling you to during that season.
1: Yeah, this is probably the most confusing part to everyone. And the probably the number one question I get is, why did you advocate for him? <laughs> why did you get your abuser out? <laughs> um, at that time, I would not have said I was in an abusive marriage. I couldn't put words to it. I would have said it was a hard marriage. And like you said, I, I thought, you know, everyone, I'm sure not everyone has an easy marriage. You just, you know, coming from the Middle East culture and Also, uh, the Christian culture, you do whatever it takes to make your marriage work. And divorce is not an option. Um, So when Saeed went to prison, um, I felt like my life had just gotten worse because I really was afraid of my children growing up without a father, uh, one. And the other thing uh, that really kept me advocating was Saeed seemed to be really broken. My dad got to visit him in Iran um the few first few uh, few months of his imprisonment his parents and he wrote some amazing letters so as i was kind of looking at this new person that was so broken and so humbled i was thinking i was daydreaming of a marriage that was going to be way better um and you know that's what i thought until Saeed got a phone inside of the prison so and uh, something that you mentioned iran should not be holding killing or imprisoning christians i You know, no matter who Saeed was, he was the father of my children and Iran was not doing the right thing, you know, and in our human minds, we can't make sense of that. Um, But God, when we were his enemies, he died for us. So. You know, when our marriage wasn't perfect, I fought for him to get him out of one of the worst prisons. That's how God is towards us. We're supposed to be followers of Christ, where we lay our life down for each other. And Iran, you know, actually, God gave me a platform to call out the Iranian government. Um, In the early 2000s, I had friends that were killed in prison. I was detained multiple times, threatened to be killed for my faith. And so I felt helpless being under the, this radical Iranian government and not having a voice. And through Said's imprisonment, God gave me a platform to call the Iranian president out, even chase them down the Iranian delegation in a hotel, which I explained in my book, um, but also gave me uh, the, a platform for the gospel and speaking before nations, and which I ex- again explained in my book. So initially fighting for him was to get the father of my children back And have my children be raised with a father. And the other part was, you know, I really believed our marriage was going to change. If Saeed saw how much I was advocating for him, how much I loved him, it was going to change our marriage. And he seemed changed at first. And also, Iran should not be holding Christians in prison. And I, I really wanted to be a voice for the persecuted church.
0: Well, uh, unfortunately, now well, we're going to have to skip over a whole lot of your story, but but there are a couple of other parts of your story that I would like to uh, drill down on just a little bit. You mentioned, for example, um, the um, the episode in the hotel in New York um, that was very dramatic. Um, by the way, I mean, wh- and well told in this story, um, and and just by the way, for listeners, um, th- you know, this is a this is a this is an adventure story in a lot of ways. I mean, it's really, uh, it's really a compelling, fast moving, um, fast moving story that, you know, like you say, you spent time in India, you spent time in, you know, Idaho, you spent much time in Iran. Um, I mean, I was just, I was actually very taken by just the, um, the movement of the story and just how compelling it was and how fast moving it was. But at some point, you know, again, let's kind of fast forward here. Um, you know, you, you advocate for Saeed, free pastor Saeed. I probably had one of the bracelets myself that I wore during that, during that season. And, um, he was ultimately released from, uh, prison and you guys were reunited, but that was, um, that was not a happy ending necessarily at that point. Right. I mean, uh, and and I wanted to, you to talk about that season about after he came to the United States, the pressure that you felt from some of the biggest leaders in evangelicalism. Um, you know, Franklin Graham, you've already mentioned uh, Tony Perkins of the Family Research Council, Jay Sekulow, who advocated for you. I mean, you know, are are, are they are they good guys, bad guys, or kind of um, unwitting? accomplices in all of this? How would you characterize that season in those people in your life today?
1: You know, I would say um, what I'm seeing with uh, how institutions are prioritized above people, and maybe that's what they're stuck in. With Franklin, I would say differently because I personally reached out to him and try to make him understand. I I sent him some very, um, a lot of information that most people don't have the, to warn him about Saïd and Uh, About a year ago, Washington Post did an interview or did a story about me um, and they asked Franklin Graham, you know, would you do what you did? Like, you know, his first reaction to my abuse stuff coming out was he called me an adulteress. And they asked him, like, would you do that again? He said, yes. <laughs> and that's the part where I was very discouraged because you would have thought he would have said, well, I learned seven years ago, I didn't know who Saeed was. He was still a hero, but I've watched the last seven years. But for him to dug, dug his heel even deeper and kind of just say, I would do it all over again, that's heartbreaking. But in general, I would say what I've seen um, uh, in, in the way people have reacted. You said I was close with, you know, I did events with Tony Perkins. That's how me and Miriam met. Uh, like you said, Jay Sekula was my lawyer, which he eventually became Donald Trump's lawyer. And so um, I, I give people benefit of the doubt. And what I've seen in general is that we are so focused on protecting an institution, like not wanting to damage the cause of Christ um, causing, protecting the institution, the a a ministry or a church or a marriage that we silence the victims because we say, well, if this comes out, then the church is going to crumble. If this comes out, then that ministry is going to crumble. Like Ravi Zacharias. I was just at an event with Lori, um, Lori Ann Thompson, who first came out about, uh, Ravi and no one believed her. So a lot of times those victims are silenced. Because we're trying to protect an institution or a marriage, you know, a lot of times pastors will say at best, they will not get involved. At worst, they will actually side with the abuser. Um, and that's because they're they're worried if they get involved, it's going to make the marriage crumble. And so I would, I would say at, um, people like, for example, Jay and Tony and others, other big name pastors, I would say, I would give them benefit of doubt and say, you know, they were more concerned about protecting the institution, but that's not biblical. And we see that with Jesus in the way the Pharisees, you know, were trying to uphold the institution of Sabbath. And Jesus continually said, it's about the person. It's about saving a life. It's not about the institution. Even David like broke Sabbath when he was on the run. Like we've missed the whole point of Christianity if we're not helping a broken person, we're walking by the side of the road when there's someone bleeding. If there is something in us that says, Well, I can't touch that person, I can't help that person because I don't want to somehow uh, damage the institution, that's unbiblical. And that's actually something Jesus called out multiple times in the Bible. Probably, uh, you know, he, you see him, that's when the Pharisees got angered by Jesus and wanted to kill him was because he kept touching that institution of Sabbath. And he kept trying to show the religious leaders. It's about the person I, Jesus came to that for the person, not the institution. Wow. So yes, I would say the reaction was horrible, um, by a lot of these people that I had gotten to know. Um, uh, but I would say I'm hoping that it was their lack of understanding that of, of them wanting to protect an institution and, not, you know, understanding the heart of God for saving a life that is so important to Christ.
0: Well, is that why you wrote this book? I mean, obviously, you wrote the book to tell your own story and to, you know, make sure that the truth of your story uh, got out into the world. But I I, am I wrong to read that kind of as a sub what you just said is kind of a subtext of your story that you were um you know, in some ways you were calling out the Christian industrial complex as it is sometimes um called and saying, you know what, when we put institutions over individuals, we have departed the way of the gospel. We have departed um um the way of Jesus. Is is that at least a subtext?
1: That's ultimately it's like, you know, a clam like fight like dealing with this dirt and turning into pearl. I would say that's the pearl of what I wanted to that's the something that I struggled with. Why did Christians react such in such a way to me? Why did they react in such a horrible way to my friend Mariam Ibrahim, who was in prison in Sudan, and for her Christian faith on death row? And yet, when she talked about abuse, they shut her down. Uh, why are we seeing an epidemic of abuse in churches? So it's all this stuff that I was, I guess, wrestling with God. That is, is ultimately the reason I wrote it. Is we. Uh, We have become more about protecting institutions than people. And the ultimate question is, is Christianity even supposed to be an institution? Uh, You know, Jesus' ways are not our ways. When uh, I talk in my book, when we became strong and powerful and rich, we lost our impact in society. Um, what if the way that we impact the world with the gospel is becoming small and weak and the opposite of how we think Christianity will spread? And why is it the underground church? And so God, why is it the underground church that's weak and poor and persecuted growing so rapidly in countries like Iran and China? And they're in homes. They can't build a $2 million, $5 million building or, uh, Eighty percent of tithes goes to a lot of times goes to just keeping a building going and salaries going instead of to the to the needy. The underground church doesn't have that, and it's moving quickly and it's moving powerfully. And it's, the body is taking care of itself. It, they're you know the, they really treat each other as family, making sure there's no need and giving their life up for each other. And so, really, ultimately, it was my. Me trying to deal with okay, what do we need a curriculum to address abuse? What do we need? And ultimately, God really speaking to me that maybe we're not supposed to even be an in institution as Christians. Maybe we're supposed to be weak and small, and that's how Christ is glorified, and that's why that's how we see such a powerful move of of the Holy Spirit in countries where Christianity has become weak and small, and in in, in homes, and it's it is is not an institution. And so that's that's ultimately why I wrote it, because it's um, I I really struggle with, you know, I my number one passion um, growing up, coming out of Islam was to be a missionary. Uh, I would have never thought I would ever talk about abuse. It's not fun. It's not pretty, but it really breaks my heart. Having been a missionary in, in Iran and in one of the hardest countries to be missionaries in and having the Muslims attack. And then coming and seeing the name of Jesus being misused to oppress and abuse under institutions that should be p- protecting and, uh, and you know, and like church or marriage or ministries. And so we're seeing one by one all these stuff coming out. So at first I was angry, like, is it the person? But maybe it's, it's maybe sometimes, you know, it is the person narcissists are drawn to a place of power with platform, where in house churches, you don't have that. So not a lot, not a lot of narcissists are drawn to that. But also maybe it's a system that's corrupting the person uh, that's putting them in this position where they should have never been. And That's not how Christianity was supposed to operate. So yes, that's a lot of what I end with. And a lot of, um, I think, seven years of being in the wilderness and I guess processing this with God is ultimately why I wrote the book. Exactly you you got it.
0: <laughs> well, that that's a good and wise word, um, Nagma. Thank you so much for that. And I, I wanna just close our conversation, if I could, with just maybe some lightning round questions, some just some quick questions from um for Possibly some quick answers. You take as long as you want to answer them. But I uh, just one real quickly. Can you can you just be specific about why did you call the book "I Didn't Survive"? Because a lot of times, you know, the language we don't we don't call sexual abuse survivors victims. The politically correct word now is to call them survivors and not victims, right? And yet your your book almost kind of says, no, no, I don't even want to be called a survivor. I didn't survive. Explain that.
1: Well, it's it's I would quickly say it's like a butterfly caterpillar going into this tension uh, and then coming out as a butterfly. The old me is is gone um, through the process of suffering. And like I said right now, with the questions of abuse um, and I had to dig deep and pray and seek God on, on a lot of things, I came out a different person. And the Bible says we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. So uh, I'm not the person I was, and we're not. The Bible says we're continually transforming by the renewing of our minds through the Word of God and by sanctification. We're being more and more into the image of Christ. So the old me did not survive. I I wouldn't. The Nagme of 10 years ago would have talked completely differently about abuse, about Christ, uh, yeah. So I didn't survive. The old me didn't survive.
0: Yeah. Um, and say a few words, too, if you if you're willing about, um, you know, kind of what you're what you're doing now. I mean, obviously, you've got this book out and you're having to uh, tolerate obnoxious questions from people like me but, uh, during this season. But what else are you doing? Are you involved in ministry? Or have you gone back to your family business? What, what, are, what are you doing?
1: Uh, I was very much involved with my dad's business. A lot of people don't know I was also a businesswoman. I am very much involved with the underground church in Iran, Afghanistan right now, which Afghanistan has been another area where there's an explosion happening with uh, people coming to know Christ. In the last couple of years, it's been more and more. Um, I hope and I um, help bring awareness to abuse. I pray that the church would... Uh, that exposing will bring healing to the church and um, we can actually, you know, be a good representation of Christ at the core of who I am. I'm an evangelist. That's why I went to Iran as a missionary. And I think when we learn as a body of Christ to treat each other, right. And to baffle the world by being on top, by being, but, but by being a slave, We're also evangelizing a lot of, you know, in the early church, a lot of people got saved by just watching how Christians interacted with each other, the unity, the love. And so at the core of addressing abuse for me is really drawing in a harvest, especially Muslim women who who are not treated correctly and um, and to see that they're honored and and. Uh, by Christ, the way Christ honors women and treats women, treated women, and how God tr- honors women. And so at the core of um, doing missions in the Middle East, but also wa- raising awareness about abuse is really also evangelism, that it would draw in a harvest.
0: Yeah. And I'm going to, a couple of questions, if, again, if you don't want to answer them, I totally understand that. But do you have any contact with Said these days?
1: Uh, we do very minimal he actually uh, one of as you uh, I mentioned in the book I told him he can't talk to me if he is going to be mean to me and actually uh that was in 2015 ever since he hasn't really wanted to talk to me <laughs> which was pretty devastating when he got out of prison so he actually does not did not want to talk to me he's I had the kids have their own phones and directly communicate with them there has been times where um I have communicated with him and he he has actually been very surprised. I've given him uh, time with the children, especially my son when the courts weren't giving him time. Um, And so he has been very surprised in ways where he's tried tried to fight me in court and then I've just given him something the court hasn't given him. Um, uh, But uh, those have been some of our communications have, have had to do with our children.
0: And what about uh, any communications with some of the Christian leaders that we just mentioned, Franklin Graham, Jay Sekulow, Tony Perkins, uh, any any contact with them, any involvement in uh, things that they're doing, or or do they have any involvement in things that you're doing now?
1: Yeah, me and Tony Perkins, and actually Ted Cruz did an event a few years ago for a girl that was abducted by Boko Haram in Nigeria and, um, a few years ago. So, we did an event, so, so I and I and I actually contacted him for the book and getting the photos, because that's where, how me and Miriam met. So there's the communications are good. Me and Jay and Jordan have talked, and things are okay. They're they're good. Uh, Frank.
0: Jordan, just to interrupt. Jordan Seculo is uh, Jay Seculo's son, right?
1: Yes. Yeah. Jordan. Me and Jordan have communicated uh, quite often, um, more and more so than Jay. Um, But yes, we've talked and um, he's been very supportive. Um, But Franklin has been my heartbreak because he was a close friend and he has really, um, I somehow, you know, as he said, I was damaging the cause of Christ by talking about abuse and he's not happy with that. So he has, um, I reached out in the last seven years multiple times and he has not been friendly. Well I'm sorry about that.
0: Well, listen, Nagma, thank you so much for um, this uh, book and uh, I, which I found to be very compelling and nourishing in my spirit and also for this conversation, which I had which uh, you know again, i I found it to be nourishing and compelling and I think you're saying a lot of wise things for the church right now, and I just want to um, say um, God bless you and affirm that and um, and I'm grateful for your time today.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Well, thanks for listening to this week's episode, Uh, an interview that I did uh, back in November with Dagma Abedini Pahani. Her new book is called, I Didn't Survive, Emerging Whole After Deception, Persecution, and Hidden Abuse. Uh, By the way, we've got some articles about her and Pastor Saheed on our website. Just go to ministrywatch.com. And, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to tell you how to search, Pahani would probably be the best way, P-A-N-A-H-I, and those stories will pop right up. Before we go, I'd like to mention to you that we're now in a new month, the month of uh, February, and we have a special offer here at Ministry Watch for those of you who uh, will make a financial contribution to us this month. It's it's a book by Teresa Sidebotham called Handling Allegations in a Ministry, Responses and Investigations. You know, one of the things that I get asked a lot here at Ministry Watch is if I do see something or hear about something in my church or in a ministry— what should I do? I think one of the reasons why uh, Christian ministries and churches don't always do a world-class job of handling problems within the church is that they just haven't been educated. They don't know what to do. It's not ill will in some cases; uh, it's just um, uh, being frozen into inactivity by not knowing what the right thing to do, both legally and biblically. And that's one of the reasons that I like this book, Handling Allegations in a Ministry. Uh, Teresa Sidebotham is an attorney. She lives in uh, right outside of Colorado Springs, Colorado. Uh, Her uh, law firm is called the Telios law firm. And we've offered this book before. It was a little more than a year ago. It proved to be a really popular offering when we offered this book as a donor premium a little over a year ago. But uh, the good news is that we've got a whole lot of folks on our uh, listenership here at the podcast and also on our email list than we we had um, a year and a half ago. So I thought it'd be worth uh, offering this book again. I think it's a powerful, important resource for churches and ministries, and I hope you'll take advantage of it. So a gift of any size, it doesn't matter. Give $1, give $1,000. Obviously, we would love it if you gave $1,000, but if you give $1, uh, you'll get a copy of this book. Just go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page. The producers for today's program are Rich Rossell and Jeff McIntosh. We get database technical and other support from Casey Suddeth, Christina Darnell, Kim Roberts, Stephen DeBerry, and a host of other folks. Thank you so much for uh, your help here at Ministry Watch. I'm Warren Smith, the president of Ministry Watch. And uh, till next time, may God bless you.